Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We're physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. We're excited to welcome Dr. Tara Sanf today. But first, we're always checking in on whatever's hot topic in health and healthcare. What do you? What's on your mind today, Harlan? Well, Howie, you're the one who came to me and said you wanted me to talk about this preprint that we'd posted. Yeah. On, on post-vaccination syndrome for people who had received the COVID-19 vaccine. And so, hey, I'm, I'm glad to talk about it. Yeah, like, so so let me just tell the readers a tiny bit and let's have you fill in the details here. You know, you're part of a much larger study of patients that have voluntarily enrolled and are providing information about their experience, both with COVID as well as those who want to voluntarily talk about their post-vaccine experience. And so you have individual, very detailed accounts of a large number of people telling you how long they've had their symptoms, what symptoms they have, and so on. So what are the key take-home messages from that? Yeah, I mean, you might ask how do cardiologists end up in this space, but, you know, as we've discussed, you know, when the pandemic came out, I, like many others, no matter what we were working on, sort of dropped things and saw whether or not we could be helpful and apply our skills. And, and in the course of that, you know, I became aware of long COVID and started publishing some work in that and starting to work with Akiko Iwasaki, who's amazing, has been on the program. She's an incredible immunologist. And uh, we became aware that there were a group of people who seemingly had a syndrome that had many of the same features, chronicity and, 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 and sort of so many different types of symptoms together and fatigue, brain fog, that that began soon after they had gotten the vaccine. And these are not anti-vaxxers. They had gotten vaccinated, of course. And and they were being largely dismissed by by the healthcare systems, doctors. Everyone was afraid to to do anything because the vaccine itself and the idea of vaccination had become so highly politicized that people were afraid that it would, you know, have a, a, a adverse effect on their careers if they start talking yeah. about this. And, you know, would people get canceled or would they be considered to be on one side or the other? And and I think that Akiko and I were really feeling that uh, these people had been largely abandoned. I mean, if people with long COVID were feeling sort of alienated from the system, you know, multiply that by a lot even more by these people yes. because nobody wanted to talk about it. And, uh, you know, I'm fortunate enough to be working with someone like Akiko Iwasaki, who, you know, sort of share the same sensibility that I did, that we should follow the science, see what, what we can learn. And by the way, respect and honor that these people are reporting substantial symptoms, that, and many of them were, were, were quite healthy before this happened. And it, you know, it's, it's a mystery right now. What, what's underlying it? How does it connect it? So we expanded our study. We had a study of long COVID, and we said, like, let's start including these individuals as well. And, uh, we, and the preprint represents a characterization of, of more than 200, the largest series to date, of people, their own reports of what they're experiencing, what their lives are like, and as a prelude to starting to do some more work with trying to do correlations between what they're experiencing and, and with the Kiko's lab doing deep immune phenotyping, trying to characterize underlying biological processes. And and give a reader or listener some idea about what the symptoms they're talking about and then how much this is impacting their lives. We had about 241 people that were 18 years and older and had self-reported this. The group that we had, their average age was about 46. And it was kind of a, a mixed group with regard to their background and, and also with regard to the vaccines that they'd received. So it wasn't just like these are only people who got, you know, Moderna or 
or Pfizer, uh, BNT, or, or even mRNAs. You know, some people got the J&J vaccine as well. And, and sort of the median time from when they were vaccinated to when their symptom onset occurred was, was only about three days. And, uh, you know, the variation of, up, you know, most of them had manifested by within a week. And, you know, we were applying these questionnaires. Some people had, had been having this syndrome for, for much more than a year by the time you know, they got into our study and were reporting how are they feeling. So this is really a long lasting syndrome. And, you know, there's this, this uh, tool we use sometimes, it's called an analog scale, but it's simply on a, you know, on a paper on the computer, you know, it's, it's just zero to 100 and is asking people if 100 is, you know, perfect health, and zero is the worst possible health imaginable, where do you see yourself on this spectrum? If you say this to, to average Americans, you know, which includes people who've got things going on in their life with regard to their health, you know, the, the average will be around 80, 85 or so. And this group was 50, you know, which is really quite, quite impaired. And, and the most common symptoms that they reported were exercise intolerance and excessive fatigue, numbness, brain fog, and various other forms of neuropathies. And even beyond that, if you start asking, you know, what their lives are like, they're feeling anxious and, and fearful and sort of overwhelmed by worries. And 80% reported feelings of helplessness. Almost 80% had severe anxiety or, or, or depression. And, you know, for so many of these people, this wasn't what they were like before when you talk to them and you hear their, their stories. But, you know, this is where they've landed. And, and it, it's, I guess, no surprise a year into this, the healthcare system not knowing what to do with them, not being able to get help, often being dismissed. And having a chronic syndrome, you know, these, these people are in, in a bad state. And so and just to give you a sense, there we also asked them about their treatments. I mean, most of these people have tried 20 or more treatments, you know, a, a wide range of things to see if they could get help. And yet they're still suffering. And so, you know, our, our thought is let's try to help make visible that there is a group of people, we don't even know how large, that's experiencing this kind of thing. And let, let's proceed with the science to see if we can uncover underlying causes, help relieve the suffering, and even understand eventually how to prevent this problem and, and avoid uh, avoid the politicization of it. Yeah, no, I mean, it's very disturbing. And uh, it's amazing that you're able to collect this type of data. And I, you know, I hope that there's, you know, going to be an ongoing assessment, not just of your population, but of others to be able to really nail down what the causative factor is, as you point down in the article. It could be the actual vaccine. It could be the way it's delivered. There's lots of possibilities about this, and we need those answers. And your heart breaks when you talk to these people. At the very least, I want to give them some hope that there are people interested in helping and, and who believe it. we will make progress together if we can work together. So uh, thanks for asking about that, Howie, but let's get on to our guest. We have a great guest today. Dr. Tara Samth is the Chief Patient Experience Officer at Smilo Cancer Hospital, Director of the Survivorship Program at the Yale Cancer Center, and an Associate Professor of Oncology at Yale Medical School. She is the Panel Chair for the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, where she leads the development and publication of survivorship guidelines. Her research centers on the impact of healthy lifestyles on cancer, as well as the quality of life after cancer. In addition to practicing medical oncology, Dr. Samth is board certified in hospice and palliative medicine. She received her undergraduate degree from Loras College and holds an MD from the Medical College of Wisconsin. 
She completed her residency and fellowships in Northwestern before coming to Yale. So first of all, I want to welcome you uh, to the podcast. Um, and you are, as we say, sort of a quadruple threat. You're, you're a clinician, you're a teacher, you're a researcher, uh, and you run programs. And you and I have talked frequently about the communications programs that you're involved in. And I want to tie that together with a recent paper that you published with Dr. Weiner, the head of the Cancer Center, on basically bringing joy back into medicine. And that's an odd topic, considering that you're, you're doing that in the context of taking care of some of the most vulnerable patients. Do you want to speak a little bit uh, about communications and bringing joy back Yes. And I just let me start by saying thank you so much for asking me to be a part of this podcast. Uh, I've been a fan for a long time and I've listened to lots of episodes. So it's a real honor. Thank you. Um, you know, burnout in healthcare providers is not a new subject, but it's really gotten a lot of attention, especially since the pandemic has hit. And oncologists are not immune to burnout either. And so um, Dr. Weiner and I have been talking since he arrived about burnout and how we can combat feelings of uh, exhaustion, depersonalization, cynicism, things that come along with burnout. And we both feel very strongly that the way we communicate with our patients can help bring uh, a more sense of connectedness in these moments where we feel very connected, which mitigates burnout and again, motivates us to come back and do more in this healthcare system um, that is full of intricacies and technologies that sometimes feel like they're working against us. What we can control is the way we communicate with our patients and with each other. Well, one thing I want to ask you about this uh, is that, you know, we were in a period where it seems as if burnout's gotten just so much worse. I mean, I appreciate this idea about the strategies that need to make a difference. But when you really look at the root causes of what's going on, what, what, what do you think is driving it? Because sometimes I worry that, and, and by the way, I love that idea. I do think you're right. Like being able to talk to patients in certain ways and the training and the, the certain cadence and the feedback is an important facet of, of medicine. But we're like developing newer strategies. I mean, even like people, you know, let, let's have quiet rooms and meditation and let's do all these things. But that there's some underlying pathologies that are driving doctors to feel that they're becoming more of, of a commodity, that they're feeling more alienated from the system, that they're feeling that they're being asked to do things that may not be in the best interest of their patients or society in the service of a business model that's around them. They're, they're becoming part of a big industry. What's your perception? Because you spend a lot of time thinking about well-being, about these root causes, yeah. and, and what can we do to actually address these sort of underlying issues? Yeah. And Harlan, let me just say, I think that you um, digest these topics so quickly and you can see the big picture and the root cause. We are working in a broken healthcare system. And by no means do I want to suggest that if you just change the way you communicate, everything's okay. I think that's absolutely not the message I would want to send. I think that um, we are human beings taking care of other human beings. And a lot of that is lost, especially in the superheroes work here era. Everyone pitch in, everyone do more in, in a system that's inefficient and, um, and driven by a bottom line that really doesn't match the complexity of the care that we give. That being said, what do we control? <laughs> Me, you, any of us who are interacting with each other in clinic and with our patients, 
And we can certainly control the, the way we bring ourselves to the clinic. And again, we can talk a lot about how we keep ourselves healthy, but how we treat each other are, and, and then how, of course, that translates into really being present fully in the moment with the patient, hearing them, making them feel seen, heard, and understood and, and cared for, which I think for most of our colleagues, this is why we were coming into a field like this to help people. And, and we lose track of that sometimes in this broken system. Can you speak briefly to the experience of your oncology patients over, Harlan mentioned, you know, the pandemic, you mentioned the pandemic, but over the last five years, cancer care was extremely and broadly disrupted early on in the pandemic. Uh, And then we had backlogs and, and so many problems in our healthcare system right now. You are aware of patient experience in your specific role for the cancer center. What take-home messages have you gotten about the patient experience as opposed to the physician experience now? Yeah. Um, There are so many, way too many to talk about here today, but let me give you one example that comes up repeatedly. In my breast cancer population, I see uh, survivors, people who aren't with cancer right now, but are nervous that the cancer could come back. And you know what the pandemic did was disrupt routine mammograms I, I heard something around 60,000, let's say, in our system. That might be wrong, but it was an astronomical number that had to be canceled and rescheduled. And, and we are still feeling the after effects of that. Patients are, were used to, pre-pandemic, a very efficient and reassuring system where they would come in, they would get their imaging, and they'd have some idea when they were done, like a little pink slip. Everything's re- pretty normal. <laughs> you know. They, and it wouldn't be the official result, but it would be a prelim read. That all got disrupted and, again, um, very difficult to just flip a switch and get back to that. So we're still feeling the anxiety around waiting a few weeks for a mammogram result to be released. And then don't forget, in the midst of all of this, the federal law went into place that allows patient direct access to their charts. Mm -hmm. Not only are they not walking away with a warm handoff, everything looks fine, don't worry, you'll get a formal letter in the mail. But now they might get an alert on a Friday night in their MyChart system, and it says needs additional imaging, and now there's no one to call. So we're, you know, there's multiple things going on at once, but that's one example of the tumultuous roller coaster ride that patient experience has been affected by the pandemic. And suffice it to say, across the board, we're not back to normal yet, even though we're almost exactly four years into the pandemic now. I mean, to borrow a phrase from survivorship, I think we're in a new normal, unfortunately, right now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah just listening to you just makes me so glad you're our, our patient experience officer at Smilo. I mean, it, it's just so obvious that you've got this sort of way to communicate and, and care deeply about, about the patients. It's, uh, it's terrific. I, I want to pivot a little bit to this survivorship issue. We've, we've talked about it before on the program. It, it's such an important area. I mean, there are millions and millions of people who are in sort of a post the initial phase of cancer and cancer treatment. They've gotten through sort of a dangerous early phase, but now they're not exactly cured. They're survivors. And, and maybe some of them are even cured, but, but they're left sort of post. And your most highly cited article focuses on the financial issues ar- around this. And, you know, I was interested to see uh, this is something, by the way, you've gotten more than 400 citations on, on this article that you were part of. 
that uh, it looked at the impact of financial burden on cancer survivors' quality of life. And yet I was surprised in this. He looked at over 2,000 patients and uh, just about 9%, a little less than 10% answered that there had been a lot of financial problems related uh, caused by their, their cancer care, that it was less than 10%. You know, as the cost of cancer therapies go up, and as people are put in a position to have to bear more of that burden, I, I, I'm thinking that this is like weighing heavily on a lot of people. And as you know, if if they don't survive, obviously they don't have to worry about it. But these survivors, the successes that we have, are still leaving them with a complication of healthcare that that they've got to grapple with. As you're thinking about patient experience, sometimes we're focusing on like how were the interactions and 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 you know how do people feel about how they were treated. But as you also look at survivorship, are there things that we need to be doing? to help to protect people in this post period, especially those who may be financially at risk and, and you know, have, have lived because of these wonderful new drugs, but also are now burdened by, by, the, by costs associated with it. What are you finding about that? Yeah, so thanks for bringing this topic up. I know it's near and dear to many um, researchers' hearts, and it is a real lived experience that I don't even think is accurately yet characterized in all of the literature, you know, qualitatively, in my survivorship clinic, which I'm in right now, actually on a hiatus here doing the podcast, but just this morning, um, listening to a long-term survivor diagnosed in 2011, who's had job insecurity um, for the past decade and now just was recently laid off. And when you listen to this patient and say, what do you think was going on? She said, I think it was my health issues that contributed to no longer being needed in my job. So it's there's all of that wrapped up. There's the um, inability to fully contribute to work at various times after diagnosis, maybe even decades after because of the long-term effects, all the doctor's appointments, all the worries and concerns. And then there's the employees who, you know, maybe um, coming at this from some angle that feels totally legitimate and yet the patient's perceiving that it has to do with me and my medical condition. And now I'm, again, in an insecure place. And again, a broken system that really relies on coverage insurance-wise through your employment. So now she's also facing having to find another way to get herself covered. I wonder a lot of your work uh, around trying to help people grapple with the fatigue that they're feeling or the cognitive issues. You know, you have to uh, try a whole bunch of strategies. I wonder if you could just Share with us what are some of the most effective ways that you're helping people, and do you think that they also have relevance to people who don't have cancer? I mean, are, are you uncovering some strategies that you think might be helpful for all of us, uh, you know, as we both talk to patients or even in our own experience? Yeah. What's worked best for you? Yeah, so, well, as, in, in, as it relates to, let's say, fatigue or um, cognitive function, you mentioned both of those, you know, the um, we have a multidisciplinary clinic that is... Uh, able to be offered to any patient. If there's patients listening, it's always open to any patient. We mostly focus in that after treatment period where things like fatigue and cognitive function, they should be resolving. And if they're not now, it's becoming, you know, a bother because usually in treatment, there's a certain amount of tolerance of these types of side effects. But for some people, it takes months and I could say even outsized years, rarely, but it can happen where things are just not bouncing back, right? And um, so we have in our clinic a dietitian, a physical therapist, a social worker, and a medical professional, myself, or a physical uh, physician's assistant. 
I have to tell you, the healthy diet and exercise can go a long way for many of these things. Now, it's not a panacea, but it, it, optimizing your health can certainly improve these the perception of these side effects. So exercise has paradoxically been shown to improve cancer-related fatigue. Rest does not do that, but exercise does. Um, proper exercise can help you sleep better. Sleeping better helps your cognition. You know, and we, we actually have a neuropsychologist that we refer to in a cancer and cognition clinic. So we try to optimize everything and also use our specialists who, who are treating other neurological uh, problems for things like cognition and fatigue. You know, the, you know there's um, sexual side effects that we see. Now, healthy diet and exercise may help some of that, but then there's some really targeted specialist um, interventions that, that we need to refer to. So a clinic like this really takes people in, listens to what's their struggle, tries to optimize their health within their expertise, and then refer out to the people when it's a little bit beyond. Let me just do one quick follow-up, though, because I'm curious. I think these are just the kind of clinics we need, by the way, not just in cancer, but there's a whole range of other people, including, for example, people with long COVID, a whole range of people that would would benefit from these high-touch, multidisciplinary approaches. They really come to bear on the various different aspects of their health. Is it a viable, from a business perspective, when you go to the health system and you say, I want to invest in this? Are, are they interested in you growing this? Are they saying this is a, this is really losing money and 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 then this is a problem with our health system that we can't invest in these kind of strategies because they're they're not as they're not as profitable as just giving chemotherapy where there's a big margin and you can bring people in what 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 can you just share your thoughts on this again i think very astute observations and, and just to add to that like couldn't you imagine a a previver clinic where you take the highest risk people you try to intervene before a diagnosis happens and now if God forbid something happens, they're in great shape to handle whatever's coming down the line. Again, we all should be living healthy diets and exercise and sleep patterns and all the things. But there are adults who get certain pieces of information who want to make this teachable moment really worth their while. And I could imagine many settings where that would apply here. But um, in terms of your question about investments, you know, Loss leader is what we've been called for a long time. <laughs> we don't make money, but gosh, we are a signature program that draws patients in, you know, from all over. And, and we still get people who travel across state lines and interregionally. Well, this is the discordance between what's the ROI. So there's a financial ROI, but then there's a patient return on the investment, right? In my view, your clinic probably gives an enormous patient return on investment. People come in having trouble. They, you know, it makes a huge difference in their lives, but because of the, the, the lack of congruence between the financial incentives and the payment systems and what's actually returning value to patients, you know, you're saddled with this term loss leader as if the only way that we really understand you is whether or not what's your P and L, what's your profit and loss is. Mm -hmm. And, and, and by the way, bless the system. They're still investing in it, even though they, lose money on it. But, but Howie, you're the expert on health policy. Well, so that was, we so to... look, this is where I was going with it next is there are relatively few survivor clinicians, survivorship clinicians out there. It's certainly not like this enormous specialty right now. Our system is not structured around this. There, we have, uh, even in value-based programs, we're not structured around this right now. Are there things that we could be doing 
from a policy point of view to be able to create structures that encourage the care of survivors through experts in survivorship, as opposed to having to have eight specialists worrying about different organs in their body. Yeah. This is really timely right now because actually the the Moonshot initiative that's sponsored by the Biden administration um, is actually having focus group meetings right now. After this podcast, I will join that meeting where we um, are a, a group of experts who are providing content and um, and helping to prioritize what the Biden administration will look to for cancer survivorship care. And the theme that we're trying to highlight is the complexity of this care and the fact that it needs to be valued in all ways. You know, there are other um, governing bodies like accreditation bodies that are now incorporating more survivorship elements into their standards. You have to you have to value this with reimbursements. You have to force programs to look at the whole patient and really, um, in order to be accredited, offer certain things. Now, exercise is sort of a no brainer. It's been proven over and over again to help in every aspect of care. So that's an example of one that's recently been adopted into the national accreditation program for breast centers, for instance. So to be a comprehensive breast cancer center you must show that you're offering exercise across the spectrum from diagnosis through survivorship. Is that enough? I mean, it's way more than it's been. So I think that um, policymakers, accrediting bodies, and then cancer centers and, and academic medical institutions and community hospitals will start to pay more attention to this if the masses demand it. Well, this, this has been a great opportunity to visit with you. Is it true, by the way, that you're an Iowa Hawkeye football fan? Is that true? <laughs> yes, I was born and raised in Mason City, Iowa, the home of the music man, uh, Meredith Wilson. Oh, my goodness. But, and I am a Hawkeye fan as well, especially the women's basketball. You know, that, that's been, uh, with Caitlin Clark, that's been quite entertaining. You know, my biggest memory of uh, University of Iowa game, I'm, a, I'm from Ohio, I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, and uh, there was an Ohio State Iowa game where isn't there like a children's hospital that overlooks the stadium and and they can the, the kids can watch the game I don't know if yeah, you that I don't know that. but anyway they, they upset that they upset the Buckeyes but there were all these kids looking at it from the children's hospital it was just quite a well then it's all all worth it Harlan in my opinion <laughs> it was all good it, it, I wouldn't say it was all good but it was all good it was all good but anyway it's such a pleasure to have you on today and thanks so much for for sharing this uh, and uh, we wish you the best. And uh, thanks for bringing in the music man a reference because now I have the song Trouble in my head. Oh. Uh, so. yeah, we all do, now we all do. Yeah, so it, I wanted you to hum 76 trombones if you don't exactly. mind. Exactly, that could be next. <laughs> Thank you very <laughs> much. Thank you for having thanks me. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thanks again. Well, that was a terrific interview. I so enjoyed having her on and uh, and hearing about the various things as survivorship clinics in particular. But Howie, this is your part of the podcast. So uh, what's on your mind this week? Yeah, I just want to close us out briefly with some, some good news, and it relates to cancer, honestly. The news itself is not too surprising, by the way. It's the magnitude that surprised me, and that is that just in the last decade, cigarette smoking has gone down by almost 75% among 18 to 24-year-olds, and by almost 50% among 25 to 39-year-olds. This is an enormous public health success that has been achieved without making the use of tobacco products illegal. There are many factors that have contributed to this, 
And the authors acknowledge, the authors of the paper in JAMA, I should have said from the beginning uh, that, that summarized this, the authors acknowledge that they can either account for how much e-cigarettes may have contributed to the decline or might be substituting for, for real cigarettes, but it still appears to be a wholesale shift in a culture of cigarette smoking that has existed in this country for over a century and has been on decline for a while, but still very, very prevalent as recently as two decades ago. The problem still persists among the oldest age groups, 55 and up. Uh, so there's still much more work to be done, but it should be noted smoking rates peaked in 1965 among men, 1985 among women, peak lung cancer rates peaked at 84 in 1984 in men and 98 in women, which is just highly consistent with the known lag between tobacco cigarette exposure and presentation with lung cancer. Lung cancer remains the number one cause of cancer death in this country, and it's number three in terms of total cancer cases. And cigarette smoking remains the most important modifiable factor for this disease. But this news suggests that further declines in lung cancer are ahead of us. And to me, all of this is good news. Uh, it's a credit to the field of public health, which made this a very, very high priority about 60 years ago, uh, and has continued to fight the good fight on, on multiple fronts against this disease. I'm so glad you brought this up today, Hi. We do need some good news. And too often we're on this podcast, we're talking about things that depress us or that we think you know really need to get better in moments we see this. So this is really timely. As you know, the British American Tobacco Company, the maker of Lucky Strike yep. uh, cigarettes, fell just 9% on, on Wednesday to a 12-year to a low yep. when it announced a 25 billion pound non-cash impairment for some of its U.S. tobacco brands. That, that's equivalent to yeah. $31 billion at current exchange rates. Yeah. And, 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 and that's because, you know, the brands that, that this company acquired as part of a takeover of Reynolds, uh, you remember Reynolds, with Palmol, Newport, Natural American Spring, Camel, you know, the, these were worth I don't, 67 billion pounds on the company's books at the end of last financial year. And because of what you're talking about, I mean, believe it, you know, we for a long time, we're trying to take down these tobacco companies. And, you know, the quitting is actually making this happen as the number of cigarettes sold in the U.S., declining by, as you said, you know, four to five percent annually for years as fewer people take it up. So, you know, this is being reflected in the business side, too, is is this this shrinkage is accelerating. And, uh, you know, Marlboro's the U.S. owner, Altria, you know, is also having yeah. this. And the vape thing, as you know, is getting regulated. Too. Yes. So and it's going down also, as we talked about a few months ago, it's gone down. So vaping has stopped peaking and the worst vaping has disappeared. So this is uh this is something, and it's it's a major shift, and I think our hope could be... Now, again, in the life expectancy tables, we're not seeing the manifestation yeah. of this yet. But, again, but it's my the hope young people. Young... It's the youngest right, exactly. people. So we should see it downstream. See it. Exactly, exactly. So I'm optimistic that we'll get that benefit as sh you know, shown out in public health, population health. Uh, so I'm saying it. it's... It's nice. It's great. It's good okay. to have some good news. Yeah. I, Howie, I'm so glad you brought that up. You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholtz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, you can continue to email us at health.veritas at yale.edu. We've been getting uh, questions. We've been answering them uh, and we'll continue to do so. But you can also continue to find us on social media, including LinkedIn, 
threads, Facebook, and even on Twitter still, even as it's called X. And I'm at H-M-K-Y-A-L-E. That's H-M-K-Yale. And I'm at the Howie. That's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E. Again, you can email us uh, and we'll, we'll follow up. I am fortunate to be the faculty director of the Healthcare Track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email for more information or go to our website at som.yale.edu slash EMBA. Health and Veritas is produced for the Yale School of Management and the Yale School of Public Health. Thanks to our researchers, Inez Gil, Sophia Stump, and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. We're so, so grateful. Very much. Talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks very much, Harlan. Talk to you soon.